you stand with me this morning? I normally jump straight into the set, but I just wanted to take this morning to slow us down. We you close your eyes? I'm going to pray over us before we start singing. God, this time is yours. And uh, I pray for each person under the sound of my voice right now that in this 15, 20 minute section of time, it's not just music, it's not just songs. It's a moment where we get to be together, fully present and available. Each person in here is significant. The journey they're on is important. And this is a time where all you ask is for presence. And I think that we can do that. So God, have this time, have these songs, have our voices as a sweet incense to heaven. Yeah. 
Point Church. Good morning. I hope you guys enjoyed Paula last week. My one of my best worship friends. Um, I try to be good and not watch the online service when I'm away. I'm like full trust. You got this. <laughs> but I trust her with everything. Quite honestly, um, I was doing things for the Lord, like being present for my daughter at a slumber party <laughs> for her birthday, um, losing sleep. But is you know a good time. But I'm back, and I just feel like it's it's starting to pick up. I feel like we're in that part of the season where it's hard to be present. It's hard to realize that God works in the weirdest ways, that there are circumstances you find yourself in, and God simply asks, do you trust me with that? Do you trust me with that broken relationship? Do you trust me to mend their heart through your submission to me? that when we soften to God's will, we become a conduit for his grace and his love. We become a partner in what he's doing. As we sing these songs this morning, they're not just songs. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a posture. So let's take this time together. Deserve it, you're worthy, 
It's hard to sing in the blessing and in the pain. Because it's easier to dance when the sun's shining on the mountaintop. It's harder to remember your promises in the valley. I often think of David and how he would rest not knowing his fate. That he would sing worship and praise to you in his fear. And that he would choose to trust you fully with the outcome. I often think of that and I often think that if he can, so can we. And it's not easy, but we can.
give you this time. We love you. We praise you and give you all honor and glory. And it's in your precious name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. It is yet another giant joy of mine to MC to introduce one of my favorite speakers here at Grace Point. Visiting in Bob's absence, can you please give Dr. Jim Wilson a warm Grace Point welcome? Thank you, Sister Chachi. What a joy it is to be with you today. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Um, I know that Thanksgiving for you guys is like next week, right? Well, in the Wilson household, it was yesterday. Uh, uh, Susan's mom was with us. Uh, she's in her 90s, and it's a real joy to be able to have her in our home for a while and to be able to take care of her. And uh, some of our children came down uh, to be able to celebrate with us. We Oh my, do I look a little heavier since last time I was here? I may very well be. What a delightful time it was. But I say that to say that I'm just filled with joy. And then to be able uh, to not only reflect upon the goodness of God and the wonderful family uh, heritage that we have in generations forward as well as generations uh, going behind and be able to hug my grandchildren and all of those wonderful things, to be able to come and worship with you today. Oh my goodness, what a treat. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12 as we continue to make a case for Christ in uh, the gospel of Mark. And as you're turning and prepare for the reading of the scripture, uh, this is the story of the widow's gift. It's a very beautiful story. It's a very delicate story. It's, um, it's one that most of us cherish if we're familiar with it. I am going to ask you, though, for a little bit of grace today as I preach through this text uh, because I'm going to want to peel back some of the sentimentality that we have around this story. Because while I believe that Mark has on the surface something for us to know and to understand and an example to emulate with this wonderful gift that the woman uh, gave and the spirit of how she gave it, I think there's something much more profound here for us. I believe when you take this text in its context, we see that Mark is doing much more than just teaching us about our attitudes and our postures when we're giving. So, during the message, when I start peeling back some of those sentimental thoughts, will you be gracious to me as I do that? Because we are going to get to a point where I think a profound truth will emerge as we do that. So let's begin with the reading of the text. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had, all she had, to live on. 
What a beautiful story. A few years ago, uh, a Boston area widow gave an unusual gift when she passed by the Salvation Army kettle. It warmed the hearts of the personnel of the Salvation Army when they read the note that was attached to it. The woman placed a diamond ring and her wedding band into the kettle. The widow gave this precious sentimental gift. Now, I respond emotionally just with the thought. Perhaps you do too. And for some of you, it may even be painful to hear me tell this story. And to you, I apologize. I don't mean to bring up any pain. But this is what she did. And the note, the note that she attached to it, she says, I'm giving this in honor of my late husband who loved Christmas and was a very generous man. And I'm hoping that you will sell these rings that you can place no value on, but that some wealthy person will hear about this and will give ten times what they're worth for these rings to help out the children. That story touches me. I can't, I can't even go there to be able to empathize with what she's doing. I can't imagine doing that personally. If for some reason I lost my precious wife. But she did it. She gave a gift that had great value, magnified by its great sentimental value, because of the cause, because of the children, because of the children that had legitimate physical needs, and because she believed that the organization she was entrusting with her gift would give it in the name of the Lord. She gave. This woman is to be commended for making a difference in the life of those kids. And you know, in reflecting on it, the, the symbols of our love are just that, they're symbols. The love remained even as she gave. Well, today we're looking at a widow who gave another noteworthy gift. But I, and we're going to see that Jesus did, in fact, commend her for her gift. But we're also going to spend some time noticing what he did not commend her for. Or, to put it another way, that he commended her in spite of some things. And unlike the gift that this Boston widow gave. Her gift, well, frankly, and remember I warned you, I'm going to need you to be gracious to me as I teach today. Frankly, wasn't going to make a difference. Let me explain what I mean. 
First, I want you to notice that Jesus commended this widow even though others were likely taking advantage of her. Our text today, the story of the widow's gift that occupies just these few verses, is sandwiched between two sections of Mark's gospel that are rather lengthy. The first one is the cluster of controversies that happened on the temple grounds. That's from chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 27, all the way to chapter 12, verse 40. We've been spending the last month or so, last six weeks or so, unpacking that as we've been making the case for Christ here. And then the next section that is to follow, chapter 13, is Jesus' eschatological discourse. And in that, he's going to be making some predictions and he's going to be talking about the end times and what is coming. Again, what precedes it is a lengthy passage. What follows it is a lengthy passage. And in between them is just this little cushion, so to speak. Just this small, delightful, sentimental story about the woman, the widow, the poor widow, who put in this very small gift into the offering. Now, what comes before uh, is significant, and what comes after is also significant. The prediction of the temple's destruction is coming. That's what comes after it, and that's significant to our third point, and we'll get to that in just a minute. By the way, when a preacher says, just a minute, do you believe him? Maybe a little bit longer than a minute. But what came before is significant for our understanding of the fact that people were likely taking advantage of her. Now, in the text that just preceded this, Jesus was warning the people about their religious leaders. And speaking specifically of the scribes, he had several criticisms of them, and one of those criticisms, in fact, the final criticism, was they devour widows' houses. And right after that, he tells this story. Now, it could be that they were not taking advantage of her, and notice that in the point I said, likely, likely was taking advantage of her. What follows this text, the prediction of the temple's destruction, we'll get to in a moment. But for now, focusing on this, that they devour widows' houses, that when she came and put in everything that she had, well, this was not at all in line with a point of agreement that Jesus and the scribes had just had a few passages above. You remember that one controversy after another is taking place. And then there's this discussion where the scribes and Jesus play nice with one another. In fact, it's in stark contrast to everything that comes before and everything that comes after. A scribe, a teacher of the law, simply asks, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response uh, was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and your neighbors yourself. And the scribe says, you're right. 
And then Jesus responds back to him. Do you remember? It's just a few weeks ago. He responds back to him. You're not far from the kingdom of God. You know, it really is one thing to know scriptural truth and another thing to live scriptural truth. In fact, the serious follower of Jesus Christ will on a daily basis evaluate their actions next to the teachings of the scripture and attempt to align them. When the scripture says all have fallen short, of the, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, does all mean all? Does all mean even those of us gathered in this room today? And it's not that sin is simply something that describes our past. It is also something that describes our current reality. And we continue to fall short of the glory of God. And the best way we know to live according to God's glory is to align our actions with the teachings of the Scripture. And so we identify places where we have failed to live up to Scripture, and then we align our actions to that. And when we do this regularly, we can do it in a predictive way. We can discuss with a loved one, with a counselor, with a coach, with a mentor... I'm in this situation, what is the most godly response? And we can reflect on what the scripture teaches and apply its teaching into our everyday life. Apparently the scribes had not, uh, they had not gone through this cycle of theological reflection that I've been describing to you. Because they agreed completely with Jesus about what the greatest commandment is. But let me ask you, is devouring widows' houses loving your neighbor? Of course not. The scripture teaches us that we are to give to widows, not take from widows. That we are to help those in the vulnerable classes. We're to care for them. We are to pay attention to the poor. We're to care. We're to love. We're to give. And yet they were taking advantage of her. You know, I don't know about you, but my blood boils when I see people doing this sort of a thing. Recently, a friend of mine told me about his own mother who's passed away recently, but she had fallen prey to those scammers that call on the phone and was going down to the Walmart or the Target and buying the gift cards. You know how they'll have a big display of different gift cards and would go and get those and then would send them to the stranger, her friend, on the other end of the phone. And apparently, a significant amount of money that she gave out of a good heart, but really was being duped, was being taken advantage of. I really mentioned a conversation with a single friend. The, the truth is, I've had that conversation over the last few years with several friends with that kind of scamming taking place. Boy, that makes my blood boil. 
But there's something that's worse than that. And that's when people do it in the name of Jesus. When in the name of religion, people take advantage of vulnerable people. The scribes were using their esteemed position. They leveraged that. And they were devouring widows' houses. Well, Jesus had already scolded them for that. Perhaps this is an example of it. And yet Jesus commends her. He commends her even though people were likely taking advantage of her. He also commends her even though her gift was insignificant. Remember I asked you for grace at the beginning of my message. I'm going to need some right now. But I want to tell you the truth about what she gave. It was insignificant. Likely, Jesus was in the court of women observing the giving routine. I say that because a woman was present. And doing some biblical background research, likely... There were 13 trumpet-shaped, and I'm going to use the term collection boxes, though they likely were made of metal and were trumpet-shaped. Well, in the shape of a funnel, maybe would be the better way to put it. And people would come, and they would put their coins into that, the, the large-mouthed collection box. And when they put the coins in, because a round object hitting a, uh, th that uh, kind of cylinder object, they would likely go around and around and around before they met the bottom. And when they met the bottom, they would claim against the other coins. I'm giving you some detail about this because I think that when the rich were giving, not only could people see what they were giving, but they could hear what they were giving. Like the clang of a cymbal, if you get enough of that going, the reverberation would make quite a noise. When you talk about trumpeting what someone has given, this gives it a new meaning, doesn't it? Sounding the trumpet before their gifts. So here the rich were giving, and they were giving a lot. Impressive amount. It was enough that people took notice. They were entertained. Now... We don't know. Perhaps there was a competitive nature with this. Certainly it was done publicly. The right hand knew what the left hand was doing here. This was not in private at all. It was public. Now, can I set aside for a moment the public nature of this and point out that it had Jesus' full attention too. Now, we know that when we give, we give so discreetly. Uh, my wife and I give online. It just automatically transfers over uh, to the church we're a member of and some other uh, places that we uh, support. It's uh, just seamless. It just, we just set it up and it happens, whether it's done in the box in the back. Uh, we, we tend not today to give publicly to where people know, where people see. Because we don't want the right hand to know what the left hand is doing. 
We don't want people to give for show. We don't want them to harm their souls when they give. And so we help facilitate giving with the right attitude. But it wasn't just in the presence of the audience that she gave. Jesus noticed. Jesus pays attention to these kinds of things. I suppose because one of the best barometers of the heart is what we do with our wallets. He paid attention. He noticed that the rich were giving large gifts. And then comes the widow. She puts in two lepta. They were Jewish coins. And in your English translations, I know this doesn't, doesn't come out, but do you notice that, that Mark does in your English translation say she put in two coins that equaled a penny? Did you notice that? He actually did currency exchange here. She put in two Jewish coins, leptas, that equaled one Roman coin, a quadrants, which would, in our parlance, be the smallest coin there is, so the translators have said worth about a penny, our smallest coin. Doing the currency exchange, Mark is underscoring for us how really insignificant the gift was that for it to even be measured under the Roman currency, she had to give two of them. Her gift was so small, was so insignificant that it was barely able to be measured. One more way to look at this is that it was so small that she couldn't have even bought a loaf of bread with it. It would have taken eight times the amount of what she had. And yet Jesus commended what she did, even though her gift was insignificant. I continue to need your grace as I point out one more thing. Not only was she likely being duped, was she likely being taken advantage of, and was her gift insignificant, but her gift was also perishable. I promised you that in a moment, the fact that Jesus begins his eschatological discourse talking about the destruction of the temple would be important. We're at that point in the passage now. Just a peek to what's coming ahead. Mark 13, 1 through 2. And as he came out of the temple, in other words, this event has closed out. We're now transitioning to the eschatological discourse. As they came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now this becomes the bridge into Jesus' 
talking about the signs of the end time. And this is going to have great significance for study that is to come here at the church. But for now, what we want to focus on is that Jesus was very aware as she paid her temple tax, as she was giving her two lepta, which equaled a single quadrants, that as she was given this insignificant gift, it wasn't just insignificant, it was perishable. And we know that in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. So she likely was being duped. Likely they were taking advantage of her, and yet Jesus commended her. Her gift was no doubt insignificant, at least on its value. Significant only, not by what she gave, but what she had left after she gave. We'll talk about that more in a minute too. But the the thing she was helping, well, it really wasn't going to help for very long. Not only was it not going to do much good, but it was giving to something that was temporary. Now, in contrast to the opening story that I told, you remember the story of the Boston widow that gave away that very sentimental gift, her wedding ring and the diamond ring, hoping that a wealthy person would buy it for 10 times what it was worth. And by the way, I join her in that. I hope that happened. I hope the kids uh, really benefited from this incredible sacrifice that she did. But even if she didn't get that, Having been in a jewelry store lately, looking forward towards Christmas, I'm pretty sure that what she gave had value and was going to make a difference. Agreed? In contrast to that great sacrifice and this one, it really makes it, it... makes the question, why did Jesus commend her jump off the page? Why? Well, Jesus commended the widow because she held nothing back. She was all in. She gave her all. Now, We're going to rejoin this thought in just a moment, but I want to put a parenthesis here because I want to talk to you about what we learned from this text about giving because it's too valuable a a lesson just to go past, okay? But we're going to put a parenthesis around what the teaching is here about giving and then return to what I believe is Mark's intent in just a moment. So, for now... Let's look at at least three lessons that we gain about our giving based upon this text that is in front of us. The first one is, we can underscore the need for us to give sacrificially based upon her example. I I mentioned a moment ago that when she gave, when she was finished giving, there was nothing left. There was nothing left. This was a sacrifice for her. When we give, it should cost us something. There's this great text in the Old Testament where 
in 2 Samuel chapter 24 where David was trying to purchase what he needed to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And uh, the person who's trying to purchase it from wanted just to give it to David. No, no, this is yours, please. And David made this great statement, 2 Samuel 24, 24. No, but I will buy it for you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Sacrificial giving. This week I was talking to a pastor friend who told me a story that... uh, was uh, happening, that, that, that a conversation that he just had with somebody in his church. Uh, it was a young girl, a young lady in the church who was talking about her grandfather and the sacrifice he had made when the church built their auditorium. Now, I happen to have preached in this church maybe, Maybe about a month ago. I think I was here three weeks ago. It was the week right before that that, that I'd preached there. And it's in the Central Valley in California. And it's an older building, an older congregation. In fact, they're in the midst of a revitalization to, to be more effective at reaching out in their community. Wonderful work they're doing right now. And so I don't know how old her grandfather is. And if I remember right, he is still alive if I remember the details of the story right. But here's what he did when they were building the building. Their family didn't have resources to be able to give. So her grandfather took a second job so that he and his wife could contribute to what the church was doing together. The story blows my mind. That someone would sacrifice like that. The auditorium is beautiful. By the way, they'd recently remodeled it, so I don't know what it was like in its, its old state. It's beautiful now. But you know, the most precious part of that story to me isn't the sacrifice of the grandfather or the fact that they built a beautiful building or that they did it together but that his granddaughter is still talking about it. What a legacy. What a legacy. That's what I mean by sacrificial giving. You know, they, the old preachers used to say, give until it hurts. I've never really liked that phrase. I like give it until it feels good. Until you know you've done something. Not out of a sense of pride. Again, we do this privately, right? Uh, we don't sound our trumpets. We, we do this discreetly. But when we give, we give sacrificially. The second thing I want to add in this parenthesis is that we give proportionately. The true measure of giving is not what we give in comparison to what other people give but what we give in comparison to what we have. And Deuteronomy 16, 17 is a helpful passage of Scripture here where we're taught to give a proportionate to our blessing that God has blessed us with. The third thing that I want you to see here is to stress the importance 
of having the right attitude when we give. Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 that each one must give as is decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So I mentioned that one of my sons was in my home last night and he reminded me because he asked me what I was going to be preaching on today and I told him and he reminded me of something that happened. His very first time that he was able to put a gift into the offering plate at church. So we were sitting there. In fact, Miss Susan was sitting right about over here in that auditorium, I think on the second row, and he was next to her. And it was his first time that he was going to get to give. And my wife handed him what he was going to give. And back in those days, the offering plates went by. And so when the offering plate went by, And she held it for him to put his gift in there. He placed it in. And my son reminded me of what happened. He busted out laughing. He busted out with this great, joyful, I mean, down, deep belly laugh. And so my wife shushed him. And I said to her, no, sweetheart, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. That's actually what that Greek word means. He loves an hilarious giver. Where people are just filled with joy at the thought of being able to give. You know, I I think the size of the gift does matter. You with me on that? I hope she did get ten times what the rings were worth because the kids have real needs. I think the size does matter and to say it doesn't is naive. But I believe that people that give great amounts without the right attitude diminish their own souls. Because we don't give so we will be proud and in comparison to others. We give out of joy because we love the Lord. We love the mission of the church. We love this church. And so we give. I want to close out those parentheses about giving. They're important lessons from the text, but I believe that Mark has more for us than just to learn more about the way that we give. I believe that Mark's intent in including this story And putting it in between the condemnation of the scribes and all the temple controversies and then the prediction of the doom of the temple and the signs of the end times. I think it, I think this has more to do with what it means to be a follower of Christ than what it means to be a generous person. You've been very patient with me in allowing me to peel back some of the sentimentality of this text. Thank you. Let me show you why I've asked you to do that. I want to spend some time looking back in the Gospel of Mark and also looking forward in the Gospel of Mark. Because I believe with this story uh, that it's saturated 
with a scarlet thread that runs throughout the gospel. And I think there's a stitch in that thread right here. First, let's go back just a few chapters. You'll remember this being preached not long ago. In Mark chapter 8, verse 35, Jesus said, For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Yes, she was all in with her giving, but it was more than that. She was all in with her life. Now, this observation is amplified by the warning that Jesus gives about the scribes in verse 40 that they devour widows' houses. But it's also magnified in doing a literal translation of the Greek from the final phrase in verse 44. Now, I don't often do this because uh, your English translations are reliable. And the English translation you have that we've read from here translates it beautifully. And by the way, I trust those biblical scholars much more than I trust myself when I get my Greek apparatus and begin to look, okay? So I'm not criticizing the translation they have. I would say it's preferred to the literal translation I'm about to give you. However, when you look at the Greek words as they appear and are literally translated into English, not smoothed out for conversation or readability, they support, they magnify, they help explain this stitch in the scarlet thread of the call for discipleship. It can literally be translated, not all she had to live on, but she threw her whole life in. See, this is not a text about giving as much as it is a text about living. The giving grows out of our heart when we're living the gospel. And where we live a life where we've held nothing back, or to use Jesus' word words in Mark 8.35, whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, whoever goes all in, whoever puts their entire life in for my sake and the gospels will save it. Looking forward in this gospel also helps because it helps include all of us in the capacity to do this. There's another woman that made a significant gift to Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verses 8 through 9. This is Jesus' words commenting upon it. There was a woman that came in and broke up an alabaster container, jar, vessel of costly perfume. And according to the disciples' evaluation of what it could have been sold for, it was worth almost a year's salary. We're talking about you buy this perfume in the department store, they're going to require your ID to hand it to you. You understand? This is a significant purchase. And she comes in and just breaks it over Jesus' head in Mark's telling of the story. 
And the disciples, the observers, were indignant. Now, when we read from one of the other Gospels, we see that it was Judas Iscariot who was leading the the charge on being disgusted by this act. But Mark doesn't tell us that, so we'll just stick to what Mark tells us. That they said this was a waste. It could have been sold and given to the poor. She's wasted this precious, sentimental, expensive gift. And then Jesus responded back with two reasons why it wasn't a waste. He gives a practical reason, and then he gives a symbolic reason. The practical reason was she was anointing his head. She was anointing his body. She was preparing it for burial. Now, three times Jesus has already predicted in the Gospel of Mark that he will die on the cross and that he will raise from the dead, which makes this particular anointing significant. Now, nowhere does the woman in this story say she's anointing Jesus for burial. She didn't know. I mean, maybe she knew he was going to die. Maybe she had believed him, but she didn't know that the women were not going to have time to prepare his body for burial because of when he died at the beginning of the Sabbath. And when the women came finally to prepare Jesus' body, he wasn't in the tomb. Now, I know it's still Thanksgiving season, about to be Christmas season, and now I'm bringing up Easter. I know that. But the truth is, you don't have a clue about Christmas without thinking about Easter. And really, what do we have to really be thankful for if he stayed in the tomb? So Jesus gives a practical reason. This did something. It accomplished a purpose, again, in juxtaposition to the widow's gift that was insignificant and was not lasting. Here we have a wealthy person, at least owned this. She may have been poor after she gave this, but at the moment she was wealthy. And she broke it over and she poured it over his head. So the symbolic nature of the act was also important. Because Jesus memorialized what she did and told us whenever we preach the gospel to mention it. Now, I don't think that means that I need to cite this text, Mark 14, 8 through 9, in every sermon. However, the spirit of it must be contained every time I preach the gospel, that it is a call to go all in. The great call of discipleship is to give your life totally to Jesus, to hold nothing back, To have no compartmentalization where he is not Lord, where he is not sovereign. To be all in. Now, I don't know where you would put yourself on the scale of poor to wealthy. Most of us would not look all the way over here if my nose is the pointer to say, yeah, I'm wealthy. I don't know. Where would you stop? Somewhere in here, maybe? Okay, let's not think just as residents of Southern California for a moment, can we? And take a world perspective. 
See, I've never met anyone that thought they were rich because they could always name someone that had more. So where are you on this scale? From a world's perspective, maybe more towards this direction. Agreed? Maybe more towards this direction. And by pairing these two stories together in the Gospel of Mark, what he's saying to us is, okay, wherever you are on the scale, there's room for you to be all in. Including everything that I just taught you or brought to your attention about giving. For most of you, you already knew all of those things. The things that were in the parentheses earlier. Knowing that and realizing that Mark is not teaching us exclusively about that. He's talking to us about how we approach our life. And how we live it. Are we in or not? Are we in or not? I want to circle back to the widow in our text. Because I want to point out to you that Jesus is not exaggerating here. Now, Jesus could exaggerate. In fact, it was a form of humor to exaggerate. So in Mark 10, 25, when he talked about the camel going through the eye of the needle, that, that, would, have been, that would have been a big belly laugh there. They would, have, they, they would have enjoyed the humor as he taught them. But there's no exaggeration here. This woman had little to nothing when she walked in and she left with nothing. She reminds me of the widow of Zarephath, although not completely. In 1 Kings 17, 12, you remember that Elijah, forgive me if I get that wrong, I get Elijah and Elisha confused all the time. Somebody in the first service told me, yes, it was Elijah, so, but I don't know him that well, so I don't know if I can trust him or not. But it was Elijah or Elisha, probably Elijah, who came upon this widow and asked for some food. Said, I'm hungry. And she said uh, this. This is what she said, 1 Kings 17, 12. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. You know the difference between this woman and the woman in our text? She had one more meal in her future. Now, I loved it that Elijah says, okay, make me something first. That's just like a preacher, isn't it? Make me something first. And then, those of you that know the story know that her flour and oil did not run out. God provided for her. It's the kind of God we serve. The woman in our text left with nothing. So what does Jesus do? Does he stand up with indignation in the temple and criticize the leaders? Well, he's already done that, hasn't he? And you remember a few chapters before, he did it rather bombastically as he turned the money changers' tables over and very physically let them know this was God's house and not for their profit? Did he stand up and defend the widow who was likely being taken advantage of? No. He calls his disciples over to him. 
Well, what does he talk about with them? Do you remember twice in the Gospel of Mark there are feeding miracles? Matter of fact, the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels is a feeding miracle. But twice in the Gospel of Mark this takes place. In one occasion he says, what do you have? And they say, oh, you know, just a couple of loaves and a few fish. And Jesus took what they had and fed thousands and there was leftover. That's the kind of God we serve. And so does he ask the disciples, okay, guys, we've got to do something for her. She has nothing. What do you have? No. She walks away. She turns and walks away. Instead, he has this conversation with his disciples. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance and she out of her poverty has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. Now I suspect that Jesus had full faith that the God of the widow in the Old Testament and the God that takes care of the sparrows in the sky had this covered. He had something more important to talk about. And that was that this woman that was likely being taken advantage of, that gave something that was insignificant and something that was not going to last, demonstrated what it meant to be a disciple. She had lost her life. She would gain it. She becomes an example for us. Listen to me, friends. Not just of how to give, but of how to live. This morning I was thinking about a baseball movie. I, you know, you're probably, you see a pastor sitting here and you think, man, he's probably praying. You know, he's probably got some deep spiritual thoughts going on right now. I was thinking about the movie Field of Dreams. Uh, and the delightful scene in that movie where uh, Ray uh, Kinsella is not invited into the cornfield. Do you remember? And he says, I've done all of this and I've never once asked what's in it for me. You remember that scene in the movie? Listen, I'm an Oakland A's baseball fan. I, I just haven't had much baseball to enjoy this past season. You understand? I, I just have to turn to baseball movies. That, that's, that's what I've got to do. And so that's where my mind goes. So I'm thinking about this scene. I haven't once asked for anything. I've never asked what's in it for me. And then remember the question? What are you saying, right? Well, what's in it for me? Even the people with the best motives have moments where we ask that question. 
the next time you ask. Think about this woman. She was all in. That's who I want to be. I pray that's who I'm becoming. How about you? Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice at how you care and provide and meet our needs. And Lord, we are also utterly amazed when we think about the price that you were willing to pay for our salvation. We thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We want to be the kind of person that we've been studying today. We're becoming that person. At times, we are that person. We need your strength, Lord, as we're on this journey of faith. That we put our entire life in. And we know, Lord, that you'll take our gift of our life and do with it as you please. Use us or don't use you to us. That's up to you. But today, Lord, as a congregation, we offer ourselves to you, to your kingdom work, and to your glory.
Guys, would you have a seat? I have a few things to share with you, a few ways that you could respond to today's message. Um, do you notice anything different? Well, shoe boxes are starting to come in. If you were here last week, you heard me talk about it. If you weren't, uh, know this. We're, we're doing our, our traditional Christmas shoe boxes, but I'm asking you to bring them early, no later than December 11th, if at all possible, because we're going to take these down to Mexico, and they have a big outreach event on December 16th. Some of you clearly already have. Uh, but it occurred to me that uh, sometimes the bottleneck is not the, the contents of the shoebox, but the box itself. And uh, I've got a couple of boxes here. So if, uh, if you need one, let me know. But also, if you've got more boxes than you can fill, would you share that wealth with us? Would you uh, bring some empty boxes here? Um, I know that there's folks who need it because we're, look, we're, we're looking to get 500 boxes. So we need... Uh, we need lots of involvement here. So you can take this one here. It's my little prop, but I'll give it away for the right person. Um, also, out in the lobby, uh, I've got sheets like this. These are the instructions on how to fill it. If, you, if you've done this before, you've already seen this before, you know what it is. But uh, if not, grab one. They're, they're available to you if you're in the courtyard. If you're in here, grab one outside. If you're on the back porch, they're right here. In the, uh, in the cup with the, with the pens right under that, there's a table. Grab one. If you're watching online, uh, you have an email from me from last week with these same instructions. Uh, if you're not getting our emails, do let me know. We want to get you on the list. But we, I want you to have what you need so that you can come, uh, hopefully as soon as next week or whenever uh, you can, get your boxes. I want to see a big mountain up here on the stage. Um, I, w I would describe what we're going to do with them, but I thought it'd be better if, uh, if Elmo described it to you, what he's going to do with them when we get them down to Central Shalom. So I asked him to make a video, and he said, I can do better than that. I'll give you a video of my wife telling you what we're going to do with them. So let's watch that. Hi, Grace Point Church. I'm Kat Compton, serving here at Central Shalom in Tijuana, Mexico. In just a few short weeks, this patio is going to become a Christmas scene, and it's going to be full of between three and 500 kids. Some of these kids are gonna come on this property for the very first time and hear the gospel for the very first time, the true meaning of Christmas. We're so excited that you have decided to partner with us to pack shoe boxes that we'll be able to gift each and every one of those kids. It's the biggest hook that we'll be able to have to bring them on property, to hear the gospel, and also hear about the programs that we have to offer them in the new year. Thank you. Thank you so much for your willingness to serve not only those in the San Diego area, in Tijuana, but in the entire world. Merry Christmas. Can we get excited about that? Is that a good thing? One, one point of clarification. She said between three and 500 kids. Let me tell you what we don't want. What I don't want is to supply them with 300 boxes and they have 500 kids show up. Um, so forget the number 300. You didn't hear that. 500 boxes. That's what we're asking for. All right? Let's do it. A okay. uh, couple more things. Um, last week, you also heard me talk about these. These are the ICU packets. This is our, our, our ministry from the San Diego Rescue Mission. This is uh, what we make available to 
our congregation here so that when we encounter somebody uh, who's, who's homeless, we have some socks, we have some hygiene products, and we have a conversation starter. And we can really uh, dignify some people with this. And uh, as the weather gets cold, this is going to become more important. You heard me say this last week, and uh, you actually cleaned off my table. I didn't put enough out there. So that means there's a couple of inferences we can draw from that. One is you, you see this need like I do. This is something that, that we should act upon. Secondly, um, I've got some more available today. They're out on the table. So uh, if, you, if you didn't get one last week, get one today. If you got one last week and you gave it away, get one today. But when they're gone, they're gone. And um, that's the next thing I wanted to bring to your attention. If, uh, if you're in a small group and the small group's on a break or, or you have uh, the capacity to put, put a group together to assemble some more, I've got empty bags, and I've got the literature that goes inside. If, uh, if there's a group of people within this congregation that wants to meet together and supply the socks and the hand sanitizer and, and everything else that goes into this, some Band-Aids, some basic stuff that I can give you on a list, do let me know. I will, I will get those things in your hands, and you can bring them here, and we can distribute this again because we're going to run out today. All right? Thanks. Um, next thing, this is exciting too, children's Christmas choir. Come on. We're going to do this December 18th. That's the week before Christmas. We're going to have Chachi up here with, uh, with your kids accompanying her. How cool is that? So for preschool age kids, they just need to show up on December 18th. We're going to get them involved, and they're going to stand and deliver and be cute because that's all we really expect from them. But for grade one to grade six, uh, we do have two rehearsals planned. One is December 4th and one is December 11th. Those are the two Sundays leading up to the 18th. And um, if they're in Kids Point or they're in Ignite, we can pull them out during service. You don't need to make an extra trip here for them to attend their rehearsal, but we do need them uh, to attend. So you need to be in church those two weeks before the 18th for your kid to be able to participate. So you hear this from me uh, a couple of times. You'll also hear it from Sierra, but uh, that's the relevant details. We're going to do this in both services, so we need kids who can uh, pull this off in both services. Sound good? That's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. I'm sure you are too. And then uh, one last thing. Uh, I mentioned this a couple of times already too, but Life After 50 has the potluck today. Uh, it's 12.14. This happens at 12.15. So in 60 seconds, it's going to begin over in room 1B, which is around the corner. Um, if you didn't bring anything, I went over there and walked by. I can smell it already. Uh, it looks like they've got plenty. So just show up, and uh, maybe you can uh, help clean up afterwards, too. I know that that's always a need. So you're, if you're over 50 years old, you're going to want to make sure you participate in that. And with that, that's all I got. I just want to say happy Thanksgiving. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.